Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. I want to invite you then to find a Bible, and I do want to encourage you to have one. You'll need one. It will be helpful for you this morning. You'll see uh, three different passages printed for us that we're going to look at. We're actually going to look at a fourth as well later on uh, in our service. We're going to turn, first of all, to Galatians chapter 5, just reading one verse, and then Ephesians chapter 2, and the page number that's printed there relates, relates to Ephesians. It's the biggest, the longest passage You'll find Ephesians chapter 2 on page 976. And then we'll flick also just very briefly to John chapter 16. Galatians 5, first of all. While you're finding that, can I just please encourage you again, if you haven't yet picked up a copy of this book from the book room at the back, I really want to commend this to you. It's a beautiful little book. It's only four pounds. It's called The Character of Christ, The Fruit of the Spirit in the Life of Our Saviour. And we couldn't really be doing anything better, could we, than as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, to have our whole minds and attention directed to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is where we see all of these things most beautifully and most perfectly. And Jonathan Landry Cruz's wonderful little book, The Character of Christ, The Fruit of the Spirit in the Life of Our Savior. I'm going to read you something from it very briefly in just a moment, but let me commend commend that to you as we turn to God's Word together. Let's hear Galatians chapter 5 then, before we turn to Ephesians chapter 2. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2 then, page 976, just a couple of pages further forward. Ephesians chapter 2 and reading verse 11 down to 18. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
Well, you might want to keep a finger there in Ephesians 2, but just turn to John's Gospel, chapter 16, please. John 16. John chapter 16 and verse 33 is the key verse for this morning, but let me read from verse 32. This is the Lord Jesus speaking, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. Let's pause and pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, you know that for many of us a storm is raging, a storm inside in our hearts, our minds, our emotions. We live in a world where many storms are raging outside. And so we pray together. Our prayer is simple. May these moments be an oasis where we hear you, the living God of heaven and earth, speak. Grant to us your spirit of peace. Above all else, we pray, Lord Jesus, make us like you. For we ask it in your precious name. Amen. I want to begin this morning where this author, Jonathan Landry Cruz, begins. I want to begin with an audacious claim. And the audacious claim is this. After the word God, could it be that the word peace is the most important word in the Bible? After God, could it be that peace is the most important word in the Bible. I don't know if you would pick something different if somebody asked you what's the most important word. Peace occurs over 500 times in the Bible. But more than this, more than this, listen to Jonathan Landry Cruz. He says this, My claim is this. God's entire purpose for the universe is best summarized by the word peace. God's entire purpose for the universe is best summarized by the word peace. Let let me tell you why I think that is true and then let me illustrate it, try and illustrate it for us. As we read Galatians 5.22, what did you think of when you heard the word peace? Or or what do you think of when you see it listed there in the fruit of the Spirit? It, It could mean anything, right? But you see, in the Bible, peace is such a rich word. It's not peace in the sense of peace and quiet, now that your kids have gone back to school. It's not mindfulness. It's not hot baths, scented candles. No, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, peace is what God does with the earth that he's made that is without form and void and empty and dark. He turns the chaos and emptiness and darkness into a world of fruitful fullness. 
It's a world of completeness, perfection, everything just so and just right, all the parts in perfect harmony and perfect working order with each other. There is nothing wrong in any area. The Bible word for peace is shalom. It's not just the absence of conflict. It is the presence of perfection. Such a big word in the Bible, peace. So Wednesday night this past week, I entered the living room to find most of the family watching TV. You, you, you know by now, it's all I do all week, uh, watch TV. But the, the family, it's all they do as well all week, watching TV Wednesday night. And I walked in and I said, what, what are we watching? And the program was DIY SOS. Anybody watching? Anybody see that this past week? Yeah, DIY SOS. And it was the most amazing story. Okay, if you've never watched this program, I, I challenge you to watch it, or at least this episode this past week, I challenge you to watch it and have dry eyes by the end. He, here was the story. A family, parents with a daughter, a daughter with high-level learning difficulties, profound difficulties, and the kind of learning difficulties that plunged their family into crisis for years. So the house that they live in is not right in any way for their daughter. And there's four generations of them under one roof. Not just grandma, but great-grandmother lives with them. And eventually, over the years, grandmother and great-grandmother had to move out, had to leave and go somewhere else because there was no space. And the camera goes round this house, and there is just clutter everywhere, and everything is broken. This family is living on top of each other. And in the midst of it, this precious, precious child with immense needs. And more than that, you learn through the program that the mom in the family has had a stroke and she's got respite needs. And dad has had to retire early from the fire service, the job that he, he loved to work in, to care for his wife and daughter and other two children. And then somehow the DIY SOS team hear about this family. And along come the team. You know the drill? The family move out and the DIY SOS team moves in. The builders from all over Northumberland flock to this place. An army, literally. And within one week, one week, what do they do? They blitz, they extend, they clean, they rewire, they redesign, they re-landscape, they replumb. I'm watching it thinking, do you do building projects? I mean, this is, this, is, this is amazing. Amazing what they do. You name it, they do it. And you, you watch it thinking, wow, I'd love to live there. Look at that. And of course, what they do is, as you're watching the builders work, they intersperse little clips. You get to know the family. You see their tears, their joys, their struggles. And then at the end, the moment you've all been waiting for comes, the moment when they open the door to the fully refurbished home and they introduce the family back into their own, their own home. The exhausted family in all their brokenness return home. And that, that's where you need your tissues, friends. Wow. Wow, they say, is this real? Is this for us? Why? How did you do that? Oh, look at that. They say the children are running from room to room, looking at everything. And, and you watch two things happen, don't you? Number one, you watch parents just shattered at the kindness of strangers. Shattered by it. 
overwhelmed by it. And secondly, you look at a family restored in a world that's been reborn for them. And as I watched it, I thought, that's shalom. That's peace. That's what it means. Everything right. Everything working. Nothing broken. No one and nothing out of kilter with anyone or anything else. Brothers and sisters this morning, that, that is peace. That is what the fruit of the Spirit is. It is heaven on earth. It is earth looking like heaven. It's why again and again in the Bible, God is called the God of peace. It's why the Lord Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. It's why his mission is called the Covenant of Peace. It's why the gospel that we preach is called the gospel of peace. And it's why in Galatians chapter 5, when Paul says, remember we've, we've seen this, he, he's in labor, he's in labor longing for the, for the Galatians to have Christ formed in them. He's longing for them to look like Christ. One of the ways he wants to see them resembling the Lord Jesus is by having his peace. Being men and women of peace like he was. So how do you do that? How do you get that? How can that grand vision of a world made new, a perfect world, a world of shalom be my world, my life, my heart? What does it look like? Now I guess this morning there are many different ways you could do this, but here's how we're going to do it this morning. If you want to sow to the Spirit, if you want to plant seeds of peace, that will grow into great oak trees of peace in your life. If you want to reap a harvest of peace from the Spirit of Christ giving you the peace of Christ, I want to show you three, three things. Number one, you need peace with God. Secondly, you need peace with yourself. And thirdly, you need peace with others. Three things to see this morning. Peace with God peace with yourself and peace with others. I want to be really clear. These are not three different types of peace. Know that there are three parts to the one peace that God gives. You need to be at peace with God first of all. You need to be at peace with yourself and then peace with others. And all these three parts are all connected to one another. Listen to Thomas Merton. We are not at peace with others because we are not at peace with ourselves. And we are not at peace with ourselves because we are not at peace with God. It's true, isn't it? We are not at peace with others because we are not at peace with ourselves. And we are not at peace with ourselves because, first of all, we are not at peace with God. I want to say to you this morning, I hope you believe this is true, the cause of every kind of strife in the world, internal in here in my mind, or in here in my heart, or external out there in the world, the, the source of all other strife is strife with God, first of all. So number one, peace with God. Peace with God. The Lord Jesus came to end our war with one another, but he did that by ending our war with God, first of all. 
Just, just have Ephesians chapter 2 open in front of you, please. Verses 11 to 18. I wonder if you spotted them as I read the passage. Paul is talking here about two groups. Two groups who were at war with, with one another, Jew and Gentile. Jews were near to God and Gentiles were far off from God. You see in verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off. He's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about you and me this morning. We were not part of God's ancient people, Israel. We were far off. And there was a wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Because the Jews had privileges that Gentiles didn't have. And isn't it true, if you have a privilege that someone else doesn't have, our own sinful hearts, they tend to make the privilege a badge of honor, don't they? We wear that privilege. It makes us think we're better than other people who don't have it. That's not what being Jewish was meant to do, but it's what it did do. It made a section of the world proud. I am near to God, and you Gentiles, you are not near to God. You are far off. And there was hostility between them. And yet, do you know what? Verse 16, the Lord Jesus came, creating in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, he came to reconcile both Jew and Gentile to God. You see it? Whether you're a Jew standing on the mountaintop of your God-given religion, or whether you're a Gentile down in the deepest, darkest pit of your paganism, in either location, you can no more touch the stars from where you're standing. You, you are far from God. And Jew and Gentile at war with each other. Not just at war with each other, friends. Worse than that, we are actually born at war with God. I wonder, wonder if you've ever thought that. You, you were born into a war. We often talk about it, don't we? People being born in Ukraine now or other parts of the world. There's the phrase, born into a conflict. Did you know you were born into a conflict? Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You were born in conflict. You were born at war with God. Maybe you were born to Christian parents, born into a Christian home. Maybe you were barely out of the hospital before you were baptized. But Paul is saying your, your nature, your operational headquarters of your person, it was born with an inverted kink in it to seek your own kingdom, to seek your own glory, not the glory of God in heaven. You were born a rebel. Did you know that? Maybe, friends, some of you would say, if you're honest, maybe that's still you today. All of this is very strange and very new. And the, 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 the way to ask, where am I with all that's happening here in this strange room that I'm in this morning? Am I a Christian? Do I know what these people are talking about? Do I know the Lord Jesus that these people are singing about? The, the way to ask and to find out is to ask yourself, is there anybody else in the driving seat of my life apart from me? Is there anybody else in the driving seat of my life apart from me? Am I in charge of my life? 
And if you know the answer is yes, maybe you are still far off from the Lord Jesus. If today you are someone who says, no, I I know him, I, I love him, I love him with all my heart. I hope in the first part of our service you drew comfort from our assurance of pardon. Do you see it printed on page four? You were not born a friend of God. You were born his enemy. And yet, while you were on that side of the line, God sent his son into our far country to change our status and to make us his friends, not his enemies. I wonder if you've ever noticed, I guess you notice at Christmas time in particular, have you ever noticed what words are sung at the beginning and the end of Jesus' life? We had some of them at the start of our service in our call to worship, right at the very beginning, page three. What did Jesus come to bring? Peace. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. They sing at the end of his life. What do the shepherds see the angels hear them singing at the start of his life? A multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to men on whom his favor rests. How can you have peace with God? How do enemies become friends? How do rebellious traitors become loyal subjects? Just look at Ephesians chapter 2 again, verse 13. Here's the answer. Chapter 2, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Both Jew and Gentile, he has made us one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances in order to create in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace. You know, in that that DIY SOS program, there's another bit that is so moving. That after the family have seen their perfect world of shalom, after they're in their world of peace, what happens next? You know it if you know the program. What happens next is that you see boots and hard hats coming over the hill towards the house. The people who make the program say to the family, we want you to meet the people that have done this for you. And a literal army of tradesmen, 200 strong or more than that, walks up the road to this family's house. Every person who made the world of peace possible. And if your tears have stopped, this is the bit that they start again as you watch them meeting these people. I I can't believe you did this for me. Human kindness on a massive scale, introducing peace into a home. Friends, this morning, when it it comes to peace with God, who comes over the hill? There is no cavalry. There is no army. There is just, what does Ephesians 2 verse 13 say? There is just one man. Only one man. One man alone brings peace. We're going to sing it later in our service. A second Adam. 
walks the earth, whose blameless life would break the curse. See it in in verse 14? He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 16, he reconciles Jew and Gentile to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. You see, this one man, the one true man of peace, the man who was a walking, talking garden of Eden paradise, everything about him was complete. Everything about the Lord Jesus was perfect. He was beautifully always at rest. And on the cross, he offered to God that life of peace and swapped it for our hatred of God. He swapped his life of peace for my life of strife. The life of strife that has made me an enemy of God. And he gives himself as our substitute sacrifice. He says to his father, let the price of making peace fall on me instead, not them. There is only one way to be at peace with God and it is through the Lord Jesus Christ and through his blood shed on the cross. I wonder if you want to go to John chapter 16 those couple of short verses that we read. John chapter 16, verse 32 and 33. Where do you find true peace? I have said to you that in me you may have peace. In me. In the Lord Jesus. Being united to Christ by faith joins us to the man of peace. The man who has overcome the world, overcome everything that could ever trouble us. You are united this morning to the world's champion. To to the conqueror of all your fears, of all that could ever go wrong. He has overcome it and you are in him. And so I want us to move to think about peace with ourselves. Peace with God, first of all, but now inner peace. The shalom that Jesus brings between me and God. The new status of friendship I have with him. What difference does that actually make to the weather inside my head, Monday to Friday? What difference does my peace with God make to the sunshine of my soul? Or the blackness of my soul? How can I know peace where I am so anxious? Number two, peace with ourselves. Peace with ourselves. We know, don't we, that sin hides us from God. Right? Sin makes us hide from God. In the garden, do you remember what does God say to Adam? Where are you? But it's not not just, friends, that sin hides us from God. I read these words this week, amazing words. Sin hides us from ourselves. Here's what one theologian said. Sin pretends and dissembles us. Knowing oneself, after all, is the first step on the road to conversion. Sin hides us even from ourselves. Our our natural, sinful human condition hides what is true about us. And and, and instead, it reveals what is false about us. And one of the things that sin hides from us all the time is that we are in Christ. I think we really struggle to believe this, don't we? It's one of the most beautiful recurring themes as Sinclair took us through Philippians over the summer. 
in Christ, in Christ I am a new creation. If I am in Him, there is peace for me in whatever else I am in in life. And yet, my sin constantly hides that from me. All I see is strife and struggle. The fact that I am in Christ gets forgotten and dropped off. Listen to Charles Spurgeon's preaching about the peace that is in Christ. One of you this week sent me Charles Spurgeon's wonderful sermon, A Peace for Tried Believers. Listen to what he says. Spurgeon says this, It is worthy of careful consideration that in the Lord Jesus himself there was ever-present and abiding peace. He had peace. If he had not himself possessed peace, we could not have peace in him. But what a holy calm there was upon the spirit of our divine master. Read his life all the way through. Dwell upon any one delightful characteristic and you will find him perfect. Truly in patience he possessed his soul. Never man had more to disturb him, but never man was less disturbed. He could not be turned aside from anything which he had resolved to do, for he set his face like a flint. When his eager and foolish disciples would push him forward or try to hold him back, he was moved neither in the one or the other direction by any of them. The background of the life of Christ, here's the key thing Spurgeon says, the background of the life of Christ is what? The omnipresence of his Father. Wherever you see him, if you see him quite alone in the garden where every disciple has forsaken him, if you see John chapter 15 verse 33 expounded, you see what that verse says, you will leave me alone and yet I am not alone. For my Father is with me. Brothers and sisters this morning, here is the heartbeat of the peace that Christ gives his people. It is not a feeling he gives us, the peace of God through Jesus is not a secret power. It's not an emotional state. It is a relationship. It's a relationship. Do you see what Spurgeon is saying? Do you know why Jesus is the man of peace, the prince of peace? Because he knew he was never alone. He knew he was never alone. His father was with him. His father was with him. Did you catch that at the end of our reading in Ephesians chapter 2? This is no accident where this passage goes. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18. For through the Lord Jesus, the man of peace, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. To the Father. Friends, here is the connection between peace with God and peace with myself. Unless I know that God is my Father, I will not have peace inside. I want to say to you this morning that the, the underlying agony in all your greatest fears and worries is dislocation between you and me and our Heavenly Father. Unless I know that God is my Father, I will not have peace in my heart inside. It is the knowledge that God is my Father that changes everything. And here is the Lord Jesus, the true Son by nature, making you and I sons and daughters by adoption. 
Friends, if you want the Spirit's fruit of peace in your life, it comes from knowing God as your Father. It comes from knowing, in fact, that each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, has a particular way of relating to you. And the way of the Father with His children is love. With the Son towards us, it is grace. With the Spirit towards us, it is comfort. But the way of the Father with His children is love. One Puritan theologian says, the great discovery of the Gospel is that what the Father peculiarly and particularly and especially fixes upon His people is His free, undeserved love. This is really beautiful. Friends, do you know what the most frequent command is in the Bible? Do you know what the most frequent command is? I was thinking about this before I had somebody tell me what the correct answer is. And I was thinking, I would probably say, love one another. Really common command, isn't it? Love one another. It's a good guess, but it is not even close. No, the most frequent command in the Bible over 300 times is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Isn't that beautiful? Doesn't that tell us something about who God is? And tell us something about who we are? Amazing that the thing that God would tell us most to do is to not fear. I'm afraid all the time. All the time. I'm sure you are. I think our fears, our worries, our anxieties, I think they're often different according to sex. Men and women's fears are often different. I think our anxieties certainly change with the stage of life that we're in. I think the older you get, the more your worries are with you in the night as well as the daytime. I think our fears usually vary with temperament and personality, don't they? But we all have them. We all have them, yes? We, we are each rulers of our anxious little realms. And yet here is God's word this morning saying to you and me, to us together, because of the Lord Jesus, do you know what it means to come to the God of the universe and call him Father? Call him Father that, that he loves you that He cares for you, that goodness and mercy, His goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. I was trying to think of this in as concrete terms as possible. Having God as Father means that you and I have somebody who says to us every day of your life, leave it with me. L leave it with me. Now, that, that there are some people that we just never trust when they say to us, leave it with me. And I was trying to think of an example that wouldn't offend somebody's kind of employment uh, here today. The, the person I thought of most was your broadband supplier, right? I'm sorry if you've got somebody working in IT. But when your, when your broadband supplier says to you, it will be turned on on Tuesday, leave it with me, you know you have just kissed your broadband goodbye for months, haven't you? The last thing I'm going to do is leave it with you. 
But isn't it true, I reckon we all have somebody in our lives who when they say to us, leave it with me, you, you don't give it a second thought. You know that is safe with them. You can take it to the bank. It's as good as happened. You're home and dry. Why? Who is that person? What is it about them that means you can just take their word? Literally, they've said it. It will be done. It will happen. You, you trust them. Brothers and sisters this morning, whatever it is about that person, Take that thing about them and amplify it a million times and oh, it is still just a, a faint shadow, a pale reflection of who God is in his overflowing bounty and trustworthiness to us, his children. It's only an echo of our heavenly Father's loving care. Here's the last passage I want you to turn to this morning. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. We're coming to the end. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That, that little word in verse 6, anxious, anxiety is a weed, isn't it, that destroys the fruit of the Spirit's peace. And I know for sure you are growing that weed in your garden this morning because I've got it in my garden. I water it all the time. I feed it. Somebody has said anxiety is practical atheism. Anxiety is practical atheism. It is the, it is the, weed, that, the weed that grows up from believing that I am the one in charge. I'm the one in charge of all the cares of my life, all the proper cares, the good concerns. I am the playwright of my play. I'm writing the script here. And if I cannot tell the beginning from the end, if I can't tell what should happen next here, then I am on my own and there is no one to help. Anxiety rises, doesn't it? Because we gain our security from our mastery of the world. And day after day, again and again, in some area, we, we realize our mastery is weak and expires and runs out. And when our command and control is threatened, we feel helpless. Can you see with me from these verses what Paul says we should do? See how it begins? See how it begins, the progression between verse 6 and 7. Right at the start of verse 6, we start with anxiety and we finish verse 7 with peace. What, what's changed in between? You can work it out yourself, can't you, as you look at it. What has changed? What has taken us from verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, to God's peace guarding us at the end? One thing, in the middle, speaking to God. Speaking to God with thanksgiving. Here's what I need to get into my head. Why do I speak to a thousand other people before I speak to God? 
Why do I ask you for help before I ask God for help? It is not wrong to ask you for help. We could do it a lot more than we do. And yet I have not asked God for help. Why do I worry in the wee hours of the morning, not pray in the small hours of the morning? And do it with thanksgiving, Paul says. Thanksgiving. Are you serious, Lord? Have you seen what I have to worry about? No, Paul says. Do you remember his character? Do you remember how he helped you last time? Are you amazed that because of the Lord Jesus, you were able to speak to him at all? I discovered this translation of verse 7 this week. I think it's beautiful. Listen to this. You can have your eyes on it as I read it. And the peace of God, which cannot be explained along ordinary lines, will stand sentry over your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that nice? The peace of God which cannot be explained along ordinary lines will stand sentry over your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is this, when the Lord Jesus is my peace between me and God, when I know I am a child of God and that he is my heavenly father and that he has told me to leave it with him, then as I leave my cares with him, God posts a sentry at the door. And worry comes past, anxiety knocks the door, fear knocks the door, and God is the one saying, no access here. I've got this. I'm dealing with this. Do you know there's even more ways I think you can have internal peace? John chapter 16, verse 33 I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Do you catch that? I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. What things? What things has the Lord Jesus said? Charles Spurgeon said, If you want to have peace in Jesus, read the things that Jesus said in John chapter 13, John chapter 14, John chapter 15. Beautiful things. Read them in the small hours of the morning. Read them in the days of sorrow. Read them in the days of trial. Charles Spurgeon says that one of the things that Jesus said to them is that trials are coming. Trials are coming. Listen to this. He said one thing that Christ foretold was that trials would land for every believer. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Spurgeon says this, learn that one way for you to gain peace is to reflect upon the the fact that trial is promised to you. Trial is in the covenant. Persecution and the ill will of the ungodly, you are going to have to endure them. Isn't that a thought? We can gain peace in our trials by reflecting on the fact that they are promised to us. Well, I'm sorry. Time has beaten me. I'm going to finish really, really quickly. Number three, peace with others. Peace with others. It's so clear, isn't it, from Galatians chapter 5. Remember how we got there? Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. 
Verse 20, the works of the flesh, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. You know, on Wednesday night, as the program finished, as I wiped the tears away, thinking I'm getting old and sentimental, I couldn't help thinking to myself as the credits rolled on the screen, I wonder, I wonder how long after the camera crews left and the workmen left and everything went back to normal, I wonder how long it was before in that perfect world there was a cross word, an angry word, a, a broken item in the house. Because it's what we do, isn't it? We, we take perfection, we touch it and tarnish it. I wonder this morning, brothers and sisters, dear friends, I wonder if there is anything for you to do this morning with others. You, you will know. Peace with God is wonderful. I have a sentry at the door of my heart because of my heavenly Father's love. But make no mistake about it, I am going to keep you at arm's length for as long as I can. I'm not going to reach out. I'm going to put another brick on that wall of hostility. Build it higher and higher until you reach across. I'm going to let it fester after what you did to me. Now, do you remember chapter 6? Brothers and sisters, find a damaged relationship in your life. Find at least one and sow to the Spirit this week. Sow to the Spirit. Plant a seed of peace. Say to, say to somebody, this is what God has done in my life. Because of who I am and who He is, let me love you. We often don't bother planting seeds, don't we? Because we want the tree right away. We want the fruit right away. No, start here. Start small. Plant and pray. Plant and pray and then one day. Chapter 6, verse 8, The one who sows to his own flesh from the flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So may it be. Amen.